0: Please pronounce your name correctly for me my name is andreas Hoffman. now
1: we've talked a little bit before we started recording you have a very um extensive background you've tried you've lived in many different places so like one of the first things i always love hearing about is sort of like how do creative people sort of get made so like were your parents creative did some teachers lead you down this path was it some inspiration that you saw along your childhood like how did you get to sort of who you
0: are today Well, it's always the question where the creativity comes from and uh, how we do, how do we deal with it? It may be not so easy always to be creative. It's nothing you can order. It's nothing you, there's no manual for it. Right. So I think my mother was a very creative person, but she was, I think in, in her period of time, she was not allowed to show this creativity. But I know she played music and she was into literature and arts and things. So I think I got it from the side, yeah. What did your father do? He was a doctor.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: And le- plastic
1: surgeon, maybe? No? No, no creativity?
0: No, no.
1: <laughs> and this was in Germany, correct?
0: Yeah, I was born in Germany and raised in Germany. In a small town close to the French border, so it was a bilingual town. Now, you
1: currently are running this thing that I'm like, What? I should even step take a step back are you running? What's your role at the Arctic Culture Lab?
0: I'm the artistic director and creating a program focusing on artists in residence and on exhibitions.
1: I love it. Okay, but give me a little overview also. What is the Arctic Culture Lab? Let's assume that the listeners have never even heard of this thing. So like, what is it? Where is it? How long has it been running for that matter?
0: we understand ourselves as a platform we want to make people meet each other and we are uniting artists curators but also researchers scientists geopolitical experts because the arctic is a hotspot when it, not only in terms of culture but also in terms of geopolitics and we try to combine both and we are also since 2 years very much focusing on how to collaborate with scientists and how to intermediate the results of scientists' research through arts and culture. It's a topic which is very important to me because very often scientists come, they do their research, they don't cooperate with the local communities and they leave. We don't know what they have done. We don't know how they have done it. We don't know how they came up with the results and how they could ignore the knowledge of people living there all their life. So it's a bit weird, this situation. But we try to involve scientists to... Let the people know what they're actually doing.
1: Okay. So that's the, you covered a huge amount of topics there. So, like, so you've got geopolitics, art. That's all I really heard. But I'm sure there were more other things, residencies, all these different things. Like, so how do you all bring it together? So, you all have a, fa- a facility, all, and where in the Arctic? Are you in the Arctic Circle? Or are you below the Arctic Circle? Give me a little geography on it as well.
0: Now, we are based in Ilulissat. It's the third biggest town in Greenland, which sounds huge, but it has only 5,000 inhabitants. And our residency center is placed in a small village about 14 kilometers north of Ilulissat. You can only reach by boat. You know, there are no roads in Greenland. By boat or by walking, which some people do.
1: Hold on a second. There are no roads in Greenland?
0: Well, we have roads from the town to the airport. That's the only road we have. But there are no roads connecting towns or cities or villages. I had no idea.
1: That's amazing. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's lovely because some people come and they book a hotel in a place that's on Airbnb in the same area as Ilulisad. And then they stay in the airport and they want to order a taxi. And, of course, the taxi comes, but the taxi is not able to take them there. They have to go down to the harbor and they have to find a fisherman taking them with the boat there. So there are some funny stories.
1: I could imagine.
0: But that's Greenland.
1: Is that purposeful? Like, Did you all make a conscious effort and say we're not doing roads or was it just you just haven't gotten around to it yet? No, I think the
0: distance is just too big to cover everything by roads. And there's no tradition actually to move so much between the towns or the cities. People are used to travel by boat. So That's the way it's been done for centuries, and it's still the way they do it. And don't forget that Greenland is just a huge rock, so whatever is going to build, it needs a lot of explosives and dynamite, and it's not so easy just to build a road as it is in Europe. Oh, I would imagine, yeah. Now, wait a minute. Okay, let's take this a step back. You're
1: German. Born and raised in Germany, I should say, and now you're in Greenland. How did that happen? What was the process that sort of got you to or what took you to Greenland?
0: Well this was not not the direct the direct <laughs> route.
1: never is
0: yeah it never is. We worked for many years in northern Norway on the very north of Norway and we worked very much always with the topic of circumpolar connections that consists in a connection between east and west and not north and south. And in Scandinavia, all the connections are north-south. Whenever you want to achieve something, you have to go to the south. Whenever you want to study, you should go to the south. Whenever you want to see a big city or a city bus or even some huge galleries, you have to go to the south. And the connection east-west is forgotten in a way. But traditionally, it is the connection that's brought people to different locations in the Arctic. So we had uh, many friends in Greenland and got very often the question if you cannot start something up here in the same way as we do it in Norway, or did it in Norway. And yeah, we said, okay, let's try. And it went very well the first year. So we continued and it's going extremely well. Well, again, when did this all start? Well, Arctic Lab started in 2012. So it's next year, 10 years. And we came to Greenland in 2019. So we started. Prepared it for one year, and then in 2019 we opened, yeah. All
1: right. Now, you have a residency program. Okay, let's go back a step. So, like, you have all these really great – you bring in multidisciplinary. You bring in artists. You bring in scientists. You bring in all these different geopolitical experts and all this kind of stuff. What is it you're trying to – sort of what's your mission, I guess?
0: When it comes to Greenland, we are every day dealing with the problem that we get this mass media image of Greenland. That needs to be corrected.
1: I assumed you had roads. so
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, but in general, I mean, people know very little about Greenland, but they know a lot about the images you see in the mass media. So it's very difficult for people from other countries to deal with Greenland. And, of course, if you see a kind of image that you want to reproduce as a tourist, and artists are also tourists when going to a residency, When you're reproducing this image, then you're multiplying this idea of a country, which is very dangerous. So we decided for long term residencies. This means artists have to stay at least for two months. I was in charge for a residency program in Norway for another company some years ago, and they had only short term residencies up to two weeks. And the problem was that we had to make a program that fits the artists and mainly the interest of the company was to make a program that fits the idea of the company. So don't show this to the artist. Don't show that to the artists. And if you're only two weeks to explore a place, of course, you're guided as a tourist, practically. You're guided through the things you, the people want you to see and want you to reflect on. But you don't have the time to find out yourself Although the negative sides of a place. It can take three to four days just to find a good coffee shop. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, of course. Luckily, in our village, is no coffee shop, though this checked.
1: <laughs> okay, fine.
0: But it takes time. It takes time. And we have this experience with all artists coming that they start after the first week, they start to plan many, many things. And I always need to calm them down and say, okay, give you one, two weeks more, walk around, explore the place, try to understand the rhythm of life, try to understand how the people deal with time and deal with daily life. And then try to join this life and try to be a part of this community and after six weeks the people finally start to settle it takes really that long to understand how such a place is running actually day by day
1: oh yeah i lived in belize for a while and we referred to it as like belizean time like nobody was ever on time they would say like oh i'll meet you at noon and they would show up around 2 p.m and they'd be acting like they were on time and it was just like, okay, you just got to get accustomed to it. Some places just have different time comprehension.
0: Yeah, and we are very dependent on the weather. I would, I would imagine. We can say tomorrow at two o'clock we are going to sail somewhere because it can be a storm or it can be a current or whatever. Things are changing very fast and we get sometimes all seasons in one day. So it's something we have to deal with.
1: Okay. Well, I'll work off of my preconceived idea of Greenland. So I would imagine that, so this, again, this is my stupid American perception via mass media of Greenland. I would imagine it's a very, what I would call like a rugged existence. Like you're, you're, you're having to chop your own wood to make your own heat. You have to like, you know, I mean, for all I know, you have to like, do you, even have, you You can't even have, like, cattle or anything. How do you all even get food and just <laughs> drink up there? Is everything brought in by boat?
0: So well, there's no wood to chop because there are no trees.
1: Duh. Yeah, I should have obviously thought
0: of that. If you would come and bring your eggs, I think you would not use it so much. <laughs> yeah, that was a stupid one, yeah. I mean, Korea is a huge country. Long, long coastline from way below the Polar Circle till. Uh, many, many hundred kilometers up on the polar circle. The south, of course, is green and deserves to be called Greenland. And the north is, of course, colder and no vegetables can be grown here. The south can supply some, in a way, the north, but in a very limited way. On the other hand, we are only 55,000 inhabitants. It's like one road in London, so that's not that many people, right? But the supply basically by boat, yeah, and in the small village where we have the residency house is the first supply boat is coming in May and the last is coming in December because then the the bay is frozen and boats cannot get in. And you've chosen to live in this place. Yes, and it's a very good lesson for artists or also for scientists that you are dependent on things you don't think you are dependent on when living in Europe, for instance. Because the supply chain is is working and it's not dependent on the weather, but it's exactly the same supply chain as we are dependent on, but it's of course much more fragile and much more dependent on circumstances like weather, winds, waves, and so on. Overall, is that an enjoyable, I mean, I guess the
1: question would be like, why go there? And then of course, why choose to live there? Because like you're not from there, so you actively chose to be there. So like, what, are the, what are the draws? What are the things that make you want to stay there?
0: I think there are always places that gives you certain inner comfort and inner calmness and a place where you feel not necessarily you cannot claim you belong to it because the place doesn't care if you belong to it or not. The place is a place. It's the same like the mountain doesn't care if the hiker is going on top of the mountain or not. Even the hiker thinks the mountain appreciates this a lot. I doubt, but it's a place I feel very, very comfortable, even though the circumstances are maybe not comfortable from a European point of view, but I think for me, it's the right place to be, and that's important. And it's a place I would like to show to artists, to scientists, to experts. It's also a place I, every single day, want to learn more about working a lot on the history of the place, and because there's very, very little written. And I'm also very fascinated by the storytelling such a place has its own storytelling, but also the storytelling from outside, how people from outside looked at the place, and how the most sensational stories are those that are repeated constantly, but not necessarily true. So it's a very complex answer why I choose to be there, but... That's, I think, the image I need to tell you. Well, And you have a family there, I take it, right? I'm seeing in the background ch- children's things on the wall. Yeah, that's my two kids. They are four and five years old. And they grew up in Greenland. They speak Greenlandic also at home between each other. When they play, they speak Greenlandic. That's their first language. Even though so, they are not necessarily the language. They were raised from side of their parents. But... They adapted this language and the culture very easily.
1: Yeah, young people can do that.
0: Since they don't know nothing else, you know. So when my son last year came for the first time to Copenhagen, he looked at a tree and he was like, what's that? You know, And then he started to hug the tree and he tried to understand what this huge plant is for. And yeah, many good questions came out of this meeting. (laughs) That sounds like fun,
1: yeah now okay i'm fascinated with the artist residency program that you all run i love residency programs i'm all for it what are like how would it's like i looked at it and i'm like okay because when i think of writing an application for a residency there was a phrase that one of my previous guests actually did which is like why me and why now so like what? How could somebody possibly say like, oh, you know what I need? I need to be in Greenland. <laughs> like what makes for a, le- like a good legitimate application that would say like that I need to be at the Arctic Culture Lab?
0: Let me start with the most worst application. I love it. Yes. And we're getting a lot of those saying, I would like to come to Greenland and to bring culture to Greenland. This is something we are reading very often. And then my question is, of course, what do you know about the culture of Greenland? And there's very little they know. So this is one of the reasons. If you don't know about the culture of Greenland, you need to go to Greenland to learn about the culture. We are working in very intensely with different artists. We make visiting artists, curators, researchers, scientists. We make them meet local artists, but also online artists living in the south of Greenland or in the very north of Greenland. So there's a network we are using actively. So the people coming to our residency can learn a lot about things they had no chance to learn about because it's so difficult to find information on the web or wherever. There's very little books about Greenlandic art and culture, and they are not up to date. So it's maybe one of a few chances to learn directly from the artists and culture workers in Greenland. So a good application is, for us, it's important that people are willing to learn and that people are able to fail. I always said that the residency is not a production. There's no aim. We don't expect artists to come up with a result because I think in this short winter time we're living today with a lot of deadlines, that's even in the creative sector. You know, they call it creative industry. So even in this sector, deadlines are pressing artists to be creative, to come up with an idea. And as soon as you wrote an application, then you have to follow this application and you are not free to say, oh, no, that was really bullshit. I want to change the whole program. And then, of course, the program advisor will tell you, yeah, but that's not what you wrote about. So we cannot accept your report. So we want people to be able to fail and to acknowledge that failing is part of the creative process. So whenever artists come and say, oh, I have an exhibition in two months and I want to work on this exhibition during my stay and this exhibition is about Greenland, then all the alarm bells are ringing because this means they have to come up with a result that's actually based on the expectation of what they will meet in Greenland. So it's again, as we talked earlier about, Again, they are just multiplying the images they had from earlier. I love it. One of my big pet peeves is just that issue of like,
1: when you apply for something, like I often saw like residencies where I apply and then it's like you know three months before they even t- decide whether it's you and that's another like six months to a year before you actually go. Like I'm always thinking like by, the, by a year from now, I have no idea what I'm going to be making. So like how could I possibly propose an idea of a project? It's ridiculous. So I hate those applications myself, but I'm trying to figure out how to do them right.
0: But an application is an important thing. It's like a business card, you know? You show what's your motivation. I think it's very important because we have also a lot of artists, not we as the residency center, but I know there's a lot of artists using residences kind of touring homes or, you know, living somewhere. I know a couple that does that, yes. Jumping from one residency to the other. I think a residency place can be a very inspiring place. It can give you a new insight can also be a provocative place but an artist a true artist should not need a residency place to be creative it should add something to the creativity that is already there
1: okay so when come somebody comes to an artist pr- residency at your program you don't expect them to necessarily have some produced outcome be- and they're not working under deadlines so what is it you do desire so like this is one of those things like I'm an artist, and I am and I apply to these things. So I always wonder from the other side. So you're the guy who's receiving these applications. So what is it that they, like, what do you hope you, like, what are the sort of characteristics or personality styles or even artistic styles that make you go, yes, these people would fit our residency beautifully?
0: There is no fit. Darn it. I wanted, like, there's no fit because we don't have this kind of scheme or shablona or how we would call it that people fit into the filter. We are very open. We are encouraging people to experiment and we like to encourage people to express their fearless curiosity, but always in respect or in respectful interaction with the local community. This is very important. They should give something back. I think it's very egoistic if an artist goes to a place to get inspired, takes something immaterial with him or her, but giving nothing back to the place. And then the local community becomes a zoo, because you're going there to watch people, to look at people, and coming home as the expert, because you have been there. This is very dangerous. And that's basically not enough. We are expecting our residency guests to be aware of research methodologies that are dealing with indigenous communities in a respectful way. So there's a lot of learning and also talking before people come. We have several online meetings with the people just to get the mindset on the right starting point before they arrive. Let's say you're arriving at the airport. What are you used to do all over the world? You call your cab, your cab brings you to the hotel or to the gallery or the art center, you're meeting the people there. So In our case, you have to carry your luggage about 500 meters down to the shoreline. There's a boat waiting for you, and the boat brings you to this small village. And for people traveling directly from London or Munich into a village with 28 inhabitants, it's already that challenging that you cannot just do it as a surprise. You have to talk about it, and you have to talk about... What does this mean for twenty eight people living in this village most of their life? That now you as an American artist come and expect the village to act for you? Or what is your expectation actually? And how will you interact with the village in a way that they feel a respectful treatment from your side? It's a very, very multilayered and very complicated.
1: It sounds it. I mean, well, and then on top of that, there's the scientists that come up there as well, the geopolitical people and the scientists and stuff. And so how does that all sort of fit together, I guess?
0: You can always talk to school kids. We have a school with five pupils. That's a small school, but a very engaged and curious group of young people. We can always offer workshops for them because kids tell about what they experienced in school at home so this is already kind of facilitating the information and we also mean at least once in the beginning or if possible also in the end of the residency stay of an artist we invite the whole village for coffee and cake to meet the artist to talk with the artist and they're also interested in how the artist sees such a place not necessarily curious about new solutions or how would you deal with this and that, but definitely interested in what is the artist's opinion or what is the artist's point of view in terms of living in such a place.
1: Okay, I've heard stories about different residencies. Some are like sort of individual and self in self sort of inspired so they sort of do things at their own pace and things like that and some residencies are very group oriented where like there'll be a whole group of people that come in at the same time and then they sort of do their residency time together it i'm assuming yours is more that of the group type of
0: thing oh, we have only two to three residency artists at the time
1: okay small group but group
0: And they're always overlapping. So, one artist is dating for two months. So, in the first month, he meets the artist who is having his second month. And in the second month, he meets the new artist starting with the first month. So, it's an overlapping thing. Because for us, it's very interesting to follow what are the experienced artists, because they stayed there already for one month, telling about the place in comparison to what we are telling about the place. Because we are very careful with telling too much if you understand, we are trying to use the information as a kind of starting to think. Okay, I'm not going to tell you this building is from that and that year and it was said that and that purpose and the reason it looks like this is that and that. They can find out themselves or they can come up with a story that's necessarily not true, but it can be very inspiring. And then they also understand why stories about green and Told in a certain way because they are automatically coming part of this storytelling. And then, of course, they get the whole information, they get the whole picture, and then they understand, oh, okay, this was wrong. But my conclusion was wrong because it was based on my experience from a completely other cultural background. And this helps artists to understand that cultural misunderstandings are not necessarily based on things like simplification, or adaptation, or colonization, but they are based on you're bringing your cultural background with you, and this is the classes you see everything through, because you don't know the other classes. You don't know the other viewpoints. Well, that's true, yeah. And therefore, the residency needs so much time. It takes two months. It's not possible to speed it up.
1: I'm all for it. I love the longer residency programs. I think that short residency programs, like you said already, which are, it's basically you're a tourist. You just come in, you you ride around like a show pony and do your thing and then leave and that's it. You don't actually get to know a place. Like I've even thought about the idea of what if there were like longer, like let's say like 18 month. hold on, let me, before you freak out, but like 18 month, where you can come back so you can go for like a month, um, and then go back to your life and then come back another month and then go back to your life and then go back another month so that you can do experience it and then go back and get perspective and then go back again and, and sort of engage in a different way that you sort of had some hindsight and some retrospect on. Like that kind of an idea of sort of repeatedly visiting a similar place and getting different experiences I also think is a, a great program. I've seen some other
0: residencies like that. What we are doing is in case that an artist comes up with a result, with a result that this can be presented as an exhibition, as a talk, as whatever, video, you name it, whatever, then we try to invite the artist back to show this for the first time in this small village where it belongs. We believe it belongs there because it started there. And the project might be shown wherever they want in the world, but it should be shown there where they place contributed to creating the artwork or whatever it is so there comes this moment where we invite people back
1: well one thing i didn't see on your website because i even though i'm sounding like i'm like asking stupid questions like i didn't research you i did do some research <laughs> The on the website i didn't see anything about like is it a funded uh, program or do we have to like as the resident artists people do we have to pay for things like so how's the funding model
0: The funding is depending on what kind of funding we get. Of course. Sometimes the funding we get is geographically limited. It means for this autumn, we got funding from Nordic Culture Point that allows us to invite artists from Iceland, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Faroe Islands to come and stay with us. We are currently working on Partnership with the US Embassy in Copenhagen to invite two to three American artists from 2022. So it's different. And then there we have an increasing amount of artists working on their PhD. That means they have funding to come and spend time in our place. So again, it's multi layered. There's not one type of artist coming. Some can be funded 100%, some can be partly funded. And some projects are so exciting that we decide to support them as much as we can. What makes for such an exciting project? Someone who wants to research his her own history, because people came from Greenland but moved abroad many, many generations before, but they still feel somehow connected but never have been here, can be very interesting.
1: I've thought about doing that exact same thing. My hip family is from Finland. And so I've been thinking about like applying for something in Finland to go and sort of, I even know the names of the people and I can, I know my family lineage all the way back to like, because in Finland, they have amazing genealogy and we can track us back to like 500 AD, like ridiculously far back. So, or 1500, I forget, but ridiculously far back and all the names and cities and everything of all of my family lineage. It's amazing.
0: What part of Finland did they come from? Darn it, I thought you were going to ask that. Uh, Do you remember?
1: I don't know it off the top of (laughs) my head. I can check my laptop, though. I have all the data, like, in a a family tree.
0: Well, it would be interesting to find a residency program there. Good call. Yeah, I will look into it. You can find out and let me know. Maybe I know someone in the area running a residency
1: program. I will. Yeah, it's on my laptop, and I'm on my desktop here. So, all right.
0: Let me add something to the supply boat coming in first time in May and the last in December, which sometimes makes the shop selection very small in February, March. But don't forget that people are used to hunt and to fish and they used to supply themselves with things the nature gives to them, which is also a beautiful way of life to learn about this. You are not dependent on the store because there's a lot of commodities out there you can use for Getting food, but also for dealing with exchange with other subjects, other things you need for life. I think that's something people living in towns or cities forget about, that there are things you can pick and hunt and fish. and.
1: Yeah, I'm so afraid to pick things. I'm already in a foreign country because I'm an American living in Europe and like, I'm already afraid to pick anything because I'm like, is that poisonous? Should I not eat that? Because I, I haven't done research. I haven't learned what I can and can't. So
0: Yes. But you know, there's a saying, you have certainly heard it saying in Czech language that there is no poisoned mushrooms. All mushrooms are eatable. Some only once.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's true. No, yeah, I'm, I'm, am a little timid. I think I, well, I grew up outside of, you know, Washington D.C., so like I was not raised to hunt and pick my own and stuff. Like we went to the grocery store and just bought everything. We were very urban in that way. So, in some ways, it sounds very attractive to sort of get back to the
0: fundamentals. But yeah, it's possible, you know. People, I show them where fishing spots where they can fish, and there's ninety nine percent chance to get a fish in 20 minutes we have beautiful bays with no one living around for miles where you can pick mussels and good seafood we introduced to them to all this kind of seafood and how to eat it and how to prepare it so also this culinary, or how you call it part of experience is also very important i would imagine
1: what kind of fish
0: oh well, there's a lot of cod cod okay there's a lot of halibut my dad would love it he loves halibut all right
1: so, well, okay, now the Arctic Culture Lab, I've been focusing a lot on the idea of the residency just because that's a part that, you know, like a lot of me and a lot of other artists listening could participate in. But you will do, or you seem to, by your website, do a lot more things. Could you give me a little overview of some of the different projects that you run?
0: We started many years back in Norway, a project that is called the SEAL Revalidation Project. Revitalization. Thank you, the SEAL Revitalization Project. You're welcome. The idea was actually that the Sami communities in the north of Norway, traditionally along the coastline, traditionally used SEAL as a natural resource. But due to the, that, what is called Norwegization, this means that they had to become good Norwegians, forget their culture and their language. Also, this tradition got lost in a way that was passed down in our generations so now many people in the north in sweden Holland, actually norway they are complaining about the increasing number of seal and how they destroy fishing equipments and so on but they don't know actually so much what to do with the seal So we started this project to introduce the knowledge, to reintroduce the knowledge, how seal can be used as a natural resource. And the first project was that we brought people from Nunavut in Canada to northern Norway, and they showed how to slaughter seal, how to use the different parts. We had a seal feast with 12 different dishes made from seal meat. They showed how to use the skin, how to sew mittens, hats, jackets, as they traditionally do. And there was one boy, he started his own business later after this workshop. So we saw, okay, there's a potential. So this project is going on. The second step was a meeting of artists, referring to the mythology of SEAL, how this mythology could be seen nowadays. And the next step we are planning in the the end of September is a second workshop about the use of seal skin together with experts from Greenland. And that's going on in Billefjord in Northern Norway. So this project is very important because it shows there's a certain cultural heritage connecting indigenous people of Northern Norway, Greenland, Canada, Alaska. And there is a knowledge that can be shared and can be Reintroduced. There's always this intersection between contemporary and cultural heritage. That's so exciting, I think. So that's all part of that geopolitical part of this, where it's
1: it's the fact that you all are all up in this circumpolar North, regardless of whether you're in Canada or what, Northern Russia or Norway or Greenland. You're all sort of having that similar experience of that. Region, I don't know how to explain it, like that temperate region, basically. That,
0: yeah, exactly, yeah,
1: and the commonality there.
0: Then another project we are running is called Kamutit. Kamutit is in Greenlandic means the dog, the dog sled. We build it together with an architect, we build it oversized, dog sled and we transformed it into an exhibition space. So this can be pulled by a snow scooter to small communities. Because I'm very convinced about the idea that art has to come to people and not people to art. I see, whenever I go to bigger cities, I see a lot of empty gallery spaces. There are more images, pictures, photos or artworks than visitors. And this means the concept of a gallery is questionable. If it works, traditionally, or we look at it historically, the gallery space goes back to the aristocratic way of showing your collection in a Art of Salon, as they called it in France. And it was invited group of selected people who has been allowed to join this cultural experience of seeing an exhibition. And in a way, it's still people who never have been to an art exhibition. They don't know how to behave there. They don't know how to what to do there, actually, what is appropriate and what's not
1: sometimes people that go to them frequently also don't know how to act at them, but yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot of people go to the opening because of the wine and the snacks. This is more interesting than the art and gathering and mingling, and that's okay. But the rest of the time, many galleries, and I'm not talking about the huge and famous art museums. Of course, they have a lot of visitors. But the small galleries, they are very, very often empty. So I experience myself when I come to a town and a city, I look what's up, which kind of exhibitions. I go there and I'm very, very often the only person in the space. So this convinced me that art has. we have to change this approach. We have to bring art to the people, not people to the art. Because people, even after 300 years, people didn't learn how to go to art. Of course, if you present some snacks, then they will come.
1: Well, alcohol is the best.
0: We use this this exhibition space, to bring it to small communities and just to place it there somewhere. Sometimes we place it in between villages just to... When people come on snowmobiles and have a look at the exhibition or they find it just by coincidence, we don't announce it in a way that, oh, tomorrow at 3 o'clock there's the opening, blah, blah, blah. No, it's just there. It pops up and people see and the people talk about it because in remote places people talk about what's new out in the land. And then they tell each other, oh, there's, and there's, there's some strange thing there with some strange things in it, but let's go there. And then we can talk to the people about what is it? What are we showing and why are we doing this? And there's a lot of discussions and dialogues going on. And that's very nice.
1: Okay, I have a really stupid question because I'm as you're talking, I'm looking at these pictures. There are pictures on your website that show the sled, the the Kumutit. Kum, Commented, um, and uh, almost every picture on your website has snow all the time. So, how much of the year is there snow in your part of Greenland?
0: Well, snow is now announced for Thursday, the first snow, in so in two days. What?
1: Okay, we're in September here. That's
0: ridiculous. Yeah. So, usually in the middle of September we get the first snow. It depends now. Due to the warming climate, it can disappear again. It can stay, and the last snow is by middle end of May.
1: Okay, that's a lot of snow. Okay, I'm just wondering, sort of how how long of the year it's covered in snow versus not. All right. So this sled, it's a very interesting idea. I would imagine, like even when you, but when you come to the thought of like presenting this work on the sled, it also has to be temperature relevant like you can't put things that are well it's i guess they also actually have to be like two-dimensional but they also have to be able to handle the weather let's say like this is an outdoor presentation
0: yeah and outdoor presentations are very COVID 19 friendly that we didn't know before we started the project but this case it's we had no limitations that we could not show it or we should limited the amount of people inside because it was it's open. It's open in all sides. Okay, wait a minute. You're in a town
1: of 28 people. Did you even have any COVID situations? Not in this village, no.
0: But there was, in Ilulisat, there was a few cases. But it was easy for Greenland to handle the situation because as soon there was, the COVID-19 popped up in a town they just closed the airport and the harbor. And there are no roads, you know, so it's very easy to isolate a place. And people have not been allowed to travel outside to, to other villages around the towns. And the system has always been very strict. People who are traveling to Greenland, they needed always a negative test, and they needed a second test three days after arrival. So I think they handled the situation in a very good way. Okay, good to hear. Not every country
1: did that. I'm not in America, but I still feel bad for how poorly America did with that. And is still doing, for that matter. But that's just my opinion. All right, but you have some other projects. So you have a festival, and then you have a project. It looks like I would refer to it as Project Null, with the zero and the slash through it.
0: The project, uh, yeah, this is the Norwegian. uh. (laughs) Uh is the shortest word in Norwegian. It means island. Okay. We are going back to this project next year. It's about, you know, the psychologists are talking about the island mentality. For me, it's a very interesting topic because an island has so many challenges when it comes, for instance, to waste management. We have to handle, there there comes a lot of, if you buy a washing machine today, there comes at least the same amount as the washing machine itself as packaging materials. And where to put it? There's no law saying, okay, if a producer in Germany sends a washing machine to Greenland, he has to take care of his waste and take it back. There's no law like this. So all the waste in the end is, piling up on the islands and need to be burned or need to be handled in a way. And many countries are selling or sending their waste to other countries just to get rid of it. I think people in Europe, for instance, they are not so much aware of the situation because they're used to go to the garbage can and problem solved. They don't think so much about what's happening next to this particular garbage bag I disposed somewhere.
1: Yes, we are blissfully ignorant in that way, yes.
0: So an island is, on one hand, it's isolated. On the other hand, it's a place where we will become much more aware of all these challenges. And we wanted to research this and in the project. We didn't come very far because we got a lot of applications from artists reading or reinterpreting their older projects in a way that it would fit into this project. But this is something a bit cheesy so we decided not to accept this kind of applications and then in the end we had not enough qualified applications and projects to go on with this project so we decided to stop it and to take it further next year
1: well okay something i'm wondering about because i've been talking with a lot of people in like norway and northern norway and iceland and a bunch of other regions you are rather removed from the quote-unquote like the arts industry and all that in the world. Is that part of what you want to be doing? Like is your desire to be included in the world's art industry, art market, whatever word you want to use for it? Or do you you just want to sort of do your thing in your niche?
0: You're asking me as a person.
1: As the artistic director of the Arctic Cultural,
0: I can only talk for our institution or for for myself. I think that Greenlandic art in general deserves to be more visible in the international art scene, but not necessarily to be so much connected. Because you know, there's nowadays, of course, there's always this universal art language. Like, if you look at an artwork, you don't see necessarily that this is an American or a British or a German artwork. So, there's not so much to talk about a national expression. The question is, of course, is this important or not? But Greenlandic art is very often very much connected to Greenland and uses either traditional forms or formats, but also Reflecting on topics that are very Greenlandic and very important to be discussed through art. So I'm a bit afraid if it, that it would happen that Greenlandic art becomes this kind of hipster, you know, now we want to show Greenlandic art, then it would go the wrong way. So we take it easy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen that in certain regions in Africa where younger artists have been influenced by America and European art styles. And so their artwork, even though they're African, their work looks European. And and I always wonder, like, is that intentional or is that by mistake or is that just the way the future is going to go?
0: Well, I mean, people are influenced by things they see and maybe by things they see and they like and they would like to do something similar. Again, it's a very complex question. But I think, you know, it's the same like with the Arctic. The Arctic in itself is a concept. It's an idea formulated by people outside the Arctic. It's the same like the Orient. The Orient is a concept developed by people outside the Orient because it's the other thing, the thing you don't understand necessarily, the thing you want to explain in a way that comforts you, the thing that's the part of the world that is extreme, it's rough, it's inhabited, it has no culture, it needs to be cultivated and civilizated, and so on and so on. This model doesn't actually work inside the Arctic, because the Arctic doesn't care about how you describe the Arctic as a person living outside the Arctic. And with this as a starting point, it is very difficult to just include Greenlandic art in a contemporary art show. Because then you have to point out, oh, this artist is from Greenland. Oh, yeah, then this artwork becomes special. But it doesn't. If the artwork is good, you don't care if the artwork comes from whatever country. So we need always to be aware of this concept, how we see another part of the world. As I said in the beginning, how we are influenced by images that confirm again and again that this other part of the world has to be explained in this and that way.
1: It's a bit of like cultural colonization in some ways. Like I mean, especially with like social media, like I could I could imagine, you know, young the next generation sitting around in Greenland or in Uganda and they're looking at artists in America and the European Union and they're being influenced by those things simply because of the internet. And so that, therefore, they sort of displace their inherent cultural experiences with what they're seeing. Everybody else is finding interesting and liking on social media.
0: And also, how in art history, when people started to collect items of, let's say, from indigenous artists, how they have been influenced by primitive art, which makes them to a very much. More intellectual and educated artists because he studied, he knows so much. And how this bone carving artist, let's say in Greenland, is just doing this because even he had no school and he's able to produce something incredible. This difference, you know, Southwest, how to say it in a nice way, I don't know, you know, but this is very dangerous. Elitism. Yeah. And it's also the idea behind, I think, is not to give a name to the unknown indigenous art, but it's about putting you on a higher social... Stratus, yeah. Class. Cla- yeah, class warfare. Class, yeah. So we are the intellectual, well-educated, let's say French, for instance, arts artist group referring to the poor, primitive artists in whatever indigenous place.
1: Well, but does that still exist right now, like these days? Just so that, is there still the, that? Because I would imagine, which you know, I haven't engaged in as much, but I would imagine indigenous artistry has more desirability and more admiration and respect being given to it in the 21st century than in prior times. Am I, I might be wrong, and you're welcome to tell me I'm wrong.
0: No, I think the understanding changed now. The equality is still not there where it could be, but the, we have big galleries dedicated to indigenous art. We have better understanding of indigenous art. We are increasingly seeing indigenous curators being involved in presenting indigenous art, which is maybe the most important step that's not the white male curator tells people what this art is about, there are many positive things happening the last few years. But I still see in exhibitions this topic of how primitive art was influencing big names and so on. We're still not there. There's still not this constantly rethinking of terms and topics as it should be.
1: Agreed. Yeah. All right any topics that i didn't ask you about that you want to talk about before we wrap up
0: no. if this was always in your interest then it's perfect
1: oh well tell me about something that i didn't even
0: know about if you're doing this for ourselves or we are looking for for a bigger context i think we are increasingly becoming part of bigger networks cooperation projects
1: Well, Nordic Culture Point is amazing. I love them very much. I hope to be applying for some funding from them myself.
0: Yes, but also I think about we have now started a partnership with Climate Research Project of the University in Bergen in Norway. It's a five-year project, so it's very big and very complex and has many layers and many working groups and so on. But the task we have is what does young people in Greenland know about how the melting ice sheet is increasing water level in the South Pacific where cultures are disappearing and how can young people in the South Pacific tell their story to young people in uh, Greenland. So it's a very nice project where art and the way of drawing and painting, due to the lack of lingual understanding, will become a very strong uh, visual part. So we are looking very much forward this project. And we are very happy to be increasingly invited to talk about our projects. Not only by you, but we are also going to talk about, about it on the Arctic Assembly in Reykjavik in the end of October. Recently, we have been presented on the Arctic Arts Summit in Finland last year. So we have enough chances to meet colleagues and to talk to other people. And, of course, as everyone did during Covid nineteen we are using the internet to talk to colleagues and to be up to date what's happening. but we don't want to prostitute ourselves. We don't want to see, oh, there's a project where we could fit in by adapting our ideas, you know no, we want to do our thing, and if it fits in a context in the project idea it's we are very open to cooperate but we are also taking care of our own ideas. what you say
1: are like because it's not just you, there's also the director. Is it just the two of you?
0: Now we are we are, we are a very small team of three people working with this Arctic culture lab. and if there are more or bigger projects coming like projects working together with small communities, we invite externists as well. Yeah. All right. Um, The only last
1: thing that I would say is uh, or last question I would have would be any sort of advice for sort of the next generation um, relevant to your own careers, your own uh, practices.
0: I'm very bad in giving advices, actually.
1: Fair enough. Okay, I'm I'm over it. (laughs) I mean, the idea is... I'm still a professor so like I always hope to try and help the next generation like I see it as like helping the next generation either find their path or help them to steer away from a path that we through our own experiences found too difficult that uh, to give them a little bit of an easier path in their careers than we had that's
0: all do you think you can do this
1: I can do it by doing hundreds and hundreds of these conversations, but by like a single, like, here, I've got a great quote for you
0: now. Oh. Yeah, because all of what you're doing is based on your own experience. And no one told you 10 years ago that you will have a podcast. No. And it came up somehow and you like the idea and you're enthusiastic about it and you went for it and it's going very well. And so... Giving advices means also to be responsible for the advices, not just be the smart ass and telling people, oh, maybe you should do this and you should do that. When you're responsible, and people would come back to you in 10 years and say, but you told me and now I failed completely. So how will you do with this? You know, so it's very easy to be smart and to give advices, but it's very, very difficult to be responsible for it. I love it.
1: All right. And that's actually great advice. So. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: I hope you enjoyed our conversation and are learning as much from this podcast as I am. I've learned about so many things that I've done wrong in my career and so many things that I need to do better moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, I would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank B. Grax, B-G-R-A-X, don't know how to pronounce it correctly. So we'll go with B. Grax for their comment and five-star rating. Thank you. Please tell your friends and to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Spot Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio is edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. You can find more information about the podcast on Instagram at Pod or our website, wisefoolpod.com.